would you say is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? Is it your income? Or is it your health? Is that the most important thing? Or maybe it's your family or friends. Or maybe a romantic relationship that you want. Or that, that dream job. There's none of those things. The two most important things are two things that will last into eternity. Your relationship with God and your relationship with God's children, your everlasting family. Those two things, your relationship with God, your relationship with your Christian brothers and sisters, are more important than any job, more important than money, more important than family or health or anything. But they are always under threat. There's this powerful force at work, always seeking to disrupt our relationship with God and disrupt our relationship with our church family. And Peter, in his letter, has been warning us about it since chapter 2, verse 12. If you're uh, new here or visiting us this morning, we've spent the last six Sundays uh, looking together at this letter written by Jesus' disciple Peter to Christians scattered across the ancient Roman province of Asia Minor a letter that has a huge amount to say to us today about who Christians are and how we should live. And the last three sermons have all been putting flesh on the bones of what Peter said in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Have a look at those verses with me. They're on page 1,218, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Who are we? Christians are strangers in this world. You were born here, you might have a British passport, but your true citizenship, if you follow Jesus, is in the kingdom of God. We're citizens of God's holy nation, but for the time being, we are living abroad in this world. And the culture of this world is nothing like the culture of the kingdom we belong to. These two cultures are as different as darkness and light. But if you live abroad long enough, I don't know if anyone here has lived abroad long enough, you start to become more and more like the locals. You pick up a bit of the language, a bit of the fashion maybe, a bit of the politics. But for a Christian, it's not really a good thing. That's deadly dangerous. We were called out of the darkness to belong to the light. Our task is to shine light into the darkness, not to return to it. That's why Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Our sinful desires are at war with us, trying to put darkness back in charge of our hearts ruining our relationship with God and ruining our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The world wants to convert us to its ways. Instead, though, God wants us to convert the world to him. That's why Peter says in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, have a look with me, he says, live such good lives among the pagans, among the Gentiles, non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So over the last three weeks, last three sermons, we've been thinking about how to abstain from sin and live good lives that honor God. Thought about uh, how to relate to the government, how to relate to our employer, how to relate to our spouse, how to relate to our church family, how to relate to those who question us or even persecute us. And in all these areas of life, Peter has shown us that to overcome sin and live God's way, we need the power of suffering. He says it again at the start of today's passage in chapter four, verse one. Have a look with me. You might need to turn the page. Chapter four, verse one. Peter writes, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. The British government's recently been arming Ukraine with our Starstreak missile system for its war against Russia. Christians too, Peter says, need to be armed. Armed for the war against our sinful desires. And the weapon that works is a particular attitude. The attitude that says, I'd rather suffer than sin. Think of Jesus. He was mocked, tortured, spat on, punched, humiliated and crucified, but he didn't retaliate. His attitude was that he would rather be killed than kill, he'd rather be hated than hate. Sin is always tempting because it feels like a solution to our suffering, it's like a way out. But Jesus preferred to endure the suffering and the result was that sin could not defeat him and his life brought glory to God. So Peter says, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Sin is always promising to save you from suffering. But if you can endure whatever pain is tempting you to sin, if you can endure it, sin lies defeated. You're done with it. The darkness of the world loses its power to tempt us. Here's just a small example. If somebody shouts at me, I feel hurt. You can imagine maybe what response you'd immediately feel inside if someone started to shout at you. Now Jesus taught us to love our enemies, but my sinful desires say, you'll feel much better if you shout back. But if I arm myself with Jesus's attitude, if I make the decision to put up with the hurt that I feel, then I won't need to, be sh I won't need to shout at them to help myself feel better. I'll be free to love my enemy like Jesus commands. Free, as Peter puts it in verse two, to live the rest of my life for the will of God. But of course, that is not easy. I think we've all, we all know that, that is not easy. Peter knows that sin is just so clever, it's so alluring, it's so powerful, it's so sneaky, it's so subtle. And so Peter exposes lies, sin's lies, with three truths. These truths all come in verses three to six. And here's what they are. Sin ruins lives. God will judge sinners. And only the gospel can save us. First truth, sin ruins lives. He says in verse three, you have spent enough time in the past 
doing what pagans choose to do. Sin can seem glamorous and good, but what Peter's saying here is, you've already tried sin. So you know from personal experience that actually sin is awful. He's saying, look back at your old life. What was it actually like? For his original audience, the answer is there in verse three. There was a lot of drinking and they were out of control sexually because they served the false gods of this world. It's not a bad description of what large parts of our society are like as well. Sin looks glamorous, it promises to help us, but how many lives and families have been ruined by too much alcohol or by sexual immorality? Sin doesn't help us, it harms. And what if you did look back in your own life to a time when you were most gripped by sin? Just imagine that time. What was it like? Did it do you good? Perhaps you can remember some damage you caused, some regrets that you've got. Well, those memories, they can do a job for us. They can help us see that however tempted we feel, we're better off suffering with God than self-medicating with sin. Second truth in verses three to six is this, God judges sinners. Sometimes there's, there's pressure to sin because of the abuse you get for being all holy. Like I remember when I was at secondary school, you know, if you were a goody two-shoes, um, you, you know, it doesn't give you credibility. It doesn't win you respect. If you want that, you have to do what everyone else does. But Peter warns us not to plunge, he uses this phrase, not to plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Because he says in verse five, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Sin promises to help you, but it won't be any help on judgment day. Whether you're alive when Jesus returns or whether you're dead, you will have to give an account of yourself to God and there will be no excuses. So don't let sin trick you. It's better to suffer the abuse than to side with sin. And the third truth is that only the gospel can save us. In the eyes of the world, suffering is weakness. Suffering is failure. So when a Christian dies, especially when that death comes as a direct result of being faithful to Jesus, what the world might see is just a wasted life. And we might ask ourselves, is Jesus really worth all the suffering and self-denial? Peter responds by saying in verse six, this is the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Yes, the world might have written off people who suffer for Jesus, but we know that because they believe the gospel, God has granted them spiritual life. Just like Jesus said, we heard this when we were going through Mark's gospel earlier in the year. Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Three realities then that help us see sin for what it really is. Sin ruins lives. God will judge sinners. Only the gospel can save us. Three realities that help us to put up with the suffering when sin is offering us, tempting us with a way out. 
And the result is that we protect our relationship with God and we protect our relationships with one another. Sin wants to disrupt those most important relationships, but by overcoming sin, we protect them. Peter says in verse seven, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Have you noticed that? That if you're not self-controlled and you do sin, it's harder to pray. Not because God doesn't love us when we sin. We know that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Our sin doesn't stop Jesus loving us, but it's like any relationship. When, you're, when you've offended or hurt or betrayed a person, it's hard just to go straight back to normal. It's like that in our relationship with God. If we constantly give in to sin, we'll find relating to him in prayer more and more uncomfortable. We end up pushing God away. But when we arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus, our prayer lives will flourish. Our relationship with God will be close. And one of the first things we should pray is for his help to love one another. Because sin also threatens our relationships with our Christian brothers and sisters. You know how sin, it tells you to retaliate, to take an eye for an eye, to shout if you're shouted at. But with the self-control of an attitude like Jesus's, we can respond to sin with love. And as Peter says in verse eight, love covers over a multitude of sins. So when sometimes someone here does fail and sin against you, you will be able to keep living, uh, keep liking, um, you'll be able to keep liking them just like God continues to like and to love you. And that prevents the damage that sin can cause. Instead of pushing that person away, you'll be able to keep drawing near to them even though they hurt you. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean uh, that we have to pretend we haven't been hurt by people. Uh, it doesn't mean we defend uh, those who are guilty of harmful behavior, but it means we respond with love and godliness, not hatred and bitterness. Arming ourselves with Jesus's attitude protects our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. Well, so far we've looked at verses uh, one to eight of chapter four. There's three more verses to go. Uh, and in those verses, Peter spells out how being free from sin enables us to go on and serve our fellow believers and so give glory to God. Sin makes us, makes us push God and other people away. Being free from sin enables us to serve them. Look with me at verses nine and 10. Peter writes, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. He mentions hospitality. Uh, that was essential to the first generation of Christians. They didn't have church buildings to meet in. They met in each other's homes. So imagine being on a rotor to have 70 people round your house regularly, on a regular basis, all of us coming to your living room, maybe once a month. You might well grumble a bit about that, but by offering hospitality, they were giving God's people a place to come together and encourage and support one another. And that's what we gather together here to do, not only to worship God, but to be together. The rest of the week, we're mostly apart, but now is a time for encouraging and supporting one another. Every day, each one of us is under pressure 
It looks different at different stages of life, right? But under pressure in various ways from our own sinful desires or from the culture around us to choose ways that are sinful or go back to our old habits. Coming together here is our chance to help one another in that battle. So Peter says in verse 10, each one of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others. We've all been given gifts by God. And these gracious gifts, they come in various forms but they're given so that we use them to benefit others. Perhaps your gift is encouraging. I know that a number of you have that gift because I've benefited from your encouragement. Perhaps it's listening to somebody when they just need to talk. And perhaps it's giving money. Perhaps it's cleaning and tidying. Perhaps it's organizing. Perhaps it's teaching or singing or smiling or praying. All these gifts help us to be hospitable and to welcome one another and enable us to get the encouragement and strength from each other that we all need. So whatever it is, that gift, our attitude should be that we want to serve one another for the glory of God. Sin, that's self-serving. Sin is all about looking out for number one. But love serves others. And when we do that, we bring glory to God. That's why Peter says in verse 11, if your gift is speaking, do it as one speaking the very words of God. Now, some people, you know, they have a gift of speaking because they talk a lot, right? That's, that's not necessarily a gift, talking a lot. But I think what Peter's talking about here is the gift of maybe being able to teach. But he might be including other gifts, like the gift of encouraging or of offering wise advice. Whatever exactly this gift is of speaking that he's talking about. The point is, don't speak what comes out of your own head. Don't give out merely human wisdom. We're only serving others when we aim to communicate the word of God to them. When we encourage and advise and teach one another the truth of the Bible. Similarly, when we serve, we don't do it to demonstrate our strength or our greatness, to boost our status. We don't serve so that we can boast about ourselves. We serve, verse 11, with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We serve one another by pointing away from the world, pointing away from ourselves, and pointing to God. In everything I say and do among you, I want to be directing you away from sin, not to me, but to God through Jesus Christ. Because as Peter says, he alone, not the world, and not me, deserves the glory and the power forever and ever. Well, what have we learned today? Sin threatens our relationship with God and our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's pressure from within us and pressure from our culture to convert to the ways of the world. But that's not who we are in Christ Jesus. We belong to him. And Peter urges us to have the same attitude as Jesus, who would rather suffer than sin. And if we aim always to have that attitude, then we remain free from sin free from suiting ourselves, free to serve one another in love through our words and our actions, so that in everything, God gets the glory, which is exactly how it was always supposed to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, send your spirit to strengthen us in our battle against sin arm us with the attitude of jesus 
Help us not to self-medicate with sin, but to suffer with you at our side so that we can serve one another and bring you glory. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.